This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio today is Jessica Warnicke, who is a doctoral candidate in the Department of History here at the University of Texas at Austin, where she works on the amateur photography movements in the Soviet Union in the 1950s and 1960s. Welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. A lot of people are familiar with the beginnings of amateur photography here in the United States, you know, with mm-hmm. the, the Eastman Kodak Company and, and companies like that. But um, as I was thinking about today's episode before coming to the studio, I, I realized I know absolutely nothing about the movements in the Soviet Union. Uh, presumably, Kodak wasn't a big force over there. So can you sort of tell us about the beginnings of the amateur photography movement? Yeah, absolutely. So... In the Soviet Union, amateur photography as a sort of club activity began in 1894 with the establishment of an organization called the RFO, um, which loosely translates to the Russian uh, photographic organization or department. And granted, because uh, photography at the time was a rather expensive hobby, most of these photographers were well-off, to say the least. However, uh, they were very, very interested in the sort of aesthetic potential of photography and the ability to manipulate photographs. And um, one of the things that they were particularly interested in was discussing how the human form moves, how you can translate that into photography. Um, And that's really the beginnings of the amateur photography movement in the Soviet Union. So much more of a sort of human aesthetic as opposed to landscape seem to be the the interest. Landscapes uh, as well, but when you're photographing something that doesn't move, (laughs) uh, uh, it's a little bit easier. Uh, So the more technically skilled photographers were very interested in uh, the human body But they were also interested in choreography. They were interested in the movements of um, the human body, like I said before. And also just the sort of general tenor of what was going on in Western Europe uh, in terms of what was acceptable to photograph. So you've mentioned that they were looking to Western Europe, but that obviously must have changed with World War I and then, of course, with the 1917 revolution. So how did photography, how was it affected by the revolution and the war? So uh, documentary photography in, in World War I uh, does exist. It's not actually my specialty. Um, what I tend to focus on in terms of amateur movements in the 1920s is artists who found photography particularly interesting. And here I'm talking about the constructivist movement Uh, which is divided into two very distinct groups. Of course, there are extraneous parts of it. But for the purposes of our talk today, uh, there's a group called Oktyabr, which is led by Alexander Rodchenko, uh, whose primary artistic background is painting, but he got into industrial design and various other media. And then Leonid Mezercher, who uh, was very much a government bureaucrat, but also interested in the aesthetic properties of photography. Uh, And these two uh, sort of competing groups, uh, as they had various uh, photographers sort of coalesce around them, uh, had very different ideas about the properties of photography. 
The revolution in terms of photography meant that photographers were interested in a new type of documenting the Soviet Union. It was very mass culture, very mass produced, interested in artistic aspects of media reaching the masses. And you see a sort of leveling of high and low art, and that's why so many artists uh, chose photography, particularly uh, photographers who were interested in revolutionary movements. One associates, and perhaps naively so, I'm not a Soviet historian, that period with a lot of government oversight. Were there attempts to control what people could take photographs of or what was or was not officially uh, sanctioned as art? Or was that not yet a real concern of the government? Uh, Between around 1917 and 1935, uh, it was not necessarily an oversight, but not the priority of the government. There's lots of things happening in the Soviet Union that took priority over mass culture. And so, uh, particularly in Leninist uh, philosophy, there were lots of competing groups, and that was completely fine. This changes in the year 1932, when Stalin begins to sort of pull on the reins of power and wants to present a united front in terms of the artistic community. And this applied to photographers as well. What happened to the photographic movement after this this mass consolidation under Stalin? At what point does it start to become more open again? Well, For amateur photographers, the year 1932 or thereabouts uh, marked the end of the amateur movement, uh, as I said, that began around 1894. And this meant that in order to photograph, you had to have the requisite permits in order to snap pictures. And this effectively ends the amateur movement until around the mid-1950s, when all of a sudden these restrictions are not enforced in the same way. Was there a change in the government at that time that allowed that happen, or popular uprisings, or popular demand, I guess is the question? Yeah, uh, well, there are two congruent yet um, similar events that happen. First of all, there's an influx of photographic technology from Germany, and that occurred as a result of war reparations. The second event in line there would be Khrushchev's cultural thaw and the ability for uh, artistic movements to albeit trepidatiously, start to investigate areas outside of um, the Stalinist milieu, otherwise known as uh, socialist realism in Soviet art. What does this do for the amateur photography movement? Um, Well, in terms of access to cameras and uh, chemicals and film especially, uh, this is a, a breakthrough for the first time in many, many years, the average Soviet citizen was able to pick up a camera and snap photographs of whatever they wanted within reason. And this has to do with accessibility. It also has to do with the uh, the camera technology taken from Germany, which allows them to have handheld cameras. So what was happening with Eastman Kodak in the early 20th century is now starting to appear in the Soviet Union. 
since you've mentioned state-approved artistic movements, were the photographs that were being taken as part of this new reinvigoration of amateur photography uh, intended for public display, or were people taking, you know, what we would consider family snapshots and keeping them private, or was it a combination of both? It's generally a combination of both. My research focuses on photographers who were part of the amateur movement, but were also in discussion with uh, public discourses about photography. And keeping in mind that public discourses about photography were very small at the time, they were in contact with major journals and newspapers and photojournalists. And what we see from this type of amateur is a real thirst for information, how to develop photographs, how to use chemicals, how to photograph in a sort of general style that fits within the photojournalistic idea of what was acceptable. And this began uh, in the early 1950s uh, and becomes more prevalent in this very small community in the mid-1950s with the re-establishment of the journal Sovetskoye Foto, which is uh, the premier uh, photography journal in the Soviet Union, which continued until 19, well, into the 90s. So how organized were these sort of collectives of photographers? Uh, You mentioned that they're sort of lobbying for more resources, more access to information. Mm -hmm. So was there a sort of organized element to it? Organization was by and large, non-existent. Uh, There were two general sources of institutional organization. The first was the Union of Journalists, which dealt mostly with professional photographers. The second were photography clubs, which were springing up all over the Soviet Union in the mid to late 50s and early 1960s, some of which uh, in Moscow and uh, Leningrad could boast memberships of three, five, you know, 700 members. Uh, So we're very prominent in those cities. And in terms of organization, many amateur photographers from, from rural areas really wanted more regulation. They wanted organization and they wanted these clubs in their cities, uh, whether regional capitals or very small um, sort of rural capitals as well. What did these photography clubs do? What were their activities? Photography clubs, depending on uh, their location, in the larger cities, Moscow, Leningrad, places like Yekaterinburg, would involve uh, weekly or bi-weekly lectures by prominent photojournalists in the area. They would include competitions with rewards or awards for those who uh, did particularly well. And really, the goal of clubs were to get amateur photographers up to standard with photojournalists and have this sort of documentary aesthetic properties that published photographs had. What happens later on is these clubs begin to become more and more demanding of the members. They become more exclusive. They don't tolerate uh, deviations from this sort of replication of 
official photographs. And instead, it becomes less about creativity and more about replicating the status quo. And this happens in the late 1960s and especially leading into the 1970s, where clubs require photographers to frequently update their portfolios in order to remain members of the club. We discussed this sort of consolidation under Stalin initially. So with this sort of reopening of of amateur photography in the Khrushchev era, was there still this issue of what were and were not considered acceptable styles of photography? Absolutely. Uh, Generally, uh, at least at the professional level, journals like Sovetskoye Photo and professional photojournalists really wanted amateurs to model the style that they were using in uh, official publications. And what this entailed was a sort of watered-down version of what photographers were doing in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, sort of avant-garde-ish, if you will. Some abstraction, some cropping, unusual angles and photographs. And this is what the Sovetskoye photo and professional photojournalists really wanted amateurs to replicate in their own work. That being said, it was not always easy for amateurs to replicate these styles. Uh, many of them constructed darkrooms in their own uh, flat bathrooms. So they would hang up curtains and develop their own images there. And that does not really translate to the sort of cropping that one could do in uh, a studio or in a dark room at an official newspaper. But this was still very much required of them. If you wanted to publish your photographs, if you wanted to exhibit your photographs at a local exhibition, this was the style that you were supposed to emulate. And if you didn't, your images were open to critique, especially if they were then published elsewhere and photojournalists had access to them. Well, what would be the the ramifications of having your work critiqued publicly? More often than not, the images that were deemed unacceptable were not published. The exception to this would be an amateur who tried and failed at replicating uh, these various uh, components or technical styles that were supported. The ramifications would be that a prominent uh, photojournalist would say, this is unacceptable. You subscribe to formalism, you subscribe to naturalism, these various sort of key terms that were used in the 1920s, 1930s to discredit photographers. So some styles were clearly more officially accepted than others. Mm -hmm. Did they remain consistent or did they evolve over time? In some ways. uh, In terms of the arguments made by photojournalists, discourses about photography and art uh, peaked in about 1962. And what these photojournalists were arguing was that photography was in fact art. This never really received public recognition. However, uh, after 1962, the sort of height of the Khrushchev era thaw, these discourses sort of devolve into photography being something between documentary and artistic. They never gave up that sort of artistic element, but they settled for a happy medium. And what this meant was that after 1962, the sort of revitalization and um, 
vigor of the amateur movement started to wane. What was initially a project of we can participate in productive leisure, we can also exhibit, we can show our images and they do something for the community, changes really after 1962 and especially into the late 1960s and early 1970s when amateur photographers feel as though their creative needs are not being met by official venues. Well, that's just about all the time we have for today. Thank you for being with us and discussing this interesting look into a facet of Soviet history we don't talk about very much. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.